Welcome back to Brailcast, connecting the dots for Brailists everywhere. And coming up this time, we join Dave Williams for a session presented as part of World Braille Day on the 4th of January 2023, Braille technology throughout the ages. Hello, good evening, and a very warm welcome from the Brailleists Foundation. Happy World Braille Day to one and all. We hope you've had a magnificent day and plenty of opportunities to spread Braille awareness, uh, challenge some perceptions about Braille, uh, and maybe even get somebody started with Braille. It's fantastic to have you with us, and we're really looking forward to sharing the story of digital Braille technology. Many of us use digital braille technology and this evening we are joined by our esteemed panel of experts, Mike Hudson, who is the director of the APH Museum, Andrew Flatteris, who is the blindness product manager at Humanware, and Venkatesh Chari, the CEO of Orbit Research, who each in turn are going to share their perspective on where braille technology came from, where it is now, and where it is going in the future. Let's go ahead and introduce our panel. Let's say good evening to Mike Hudson from APH. Hi, Mike. Hi, how's it going? I'm great. Thank you very much for joining us from uh, Louisville, of course, the home of the uh, American Printing House uh, for the Blind. And we're looking forward to hearing about some of your collection shortly. Uh, Andrew Flatteris, I believe you're in the East Midlands. I am, Dave. Good evening, everyone. And happy World Braille Day. And of course, Andrew, you are the Blindness Product Manager with Humanware. Thank you so much for joining us. Humanware, a world leader in the uh, development of uh, Braille technology. Uh, and somebody who I think I probably still think of as uh, one of the kind of the newer kids on the block, but actually you've been with us uh, some time now, uh, Venkatesh Chari from Orbit Research. Hello. 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 Hello, everyone. Thank you for, for having me here and well, um, happy world Braille Day to everyone. And uh, yeah, I guess we are the newer kids on the block. And uh, uh, you know, that said, uh, it's actually our 25th year uh, this year uh, in business, though we have been doing Braille for a shorter time than that. But uh, yeah, I guess we, we are the newer kids. Well, that's fantastic that you that you sharing that, Venkatesh. Congratulations on twenty five years, and I think that's something that would be great to to try and do tonight is to dispel myths. So, if we've got something wrong, or you think there's a misconception uh, out there, then we're all about um, challenging those. And thank you, Venkatesh, for joining us from Boston. So, I'm going to start with you, Mike. Um, can you just take us back to a time uh, where uh, digital Braille technology first? emerged what are some of the earliest examples and sure so let's let's walk through a very brief history of refreshable braille right so so braille is introduced by uh, its inventor louis braille in paris france in 1829 it opens up the world of reading and writing for people that are blind but the system isn't perfect um, in its ordinary form paper braille it's bulky and print documents need to be transcribed into the Braille code, which can be time-consuming and expensive. So enter the portable, refreshable Braille display on a device that can allow a user to store, read, and write documents and do so much more. Now, there are many Braille users that use them today in many forms, but how did they get started? So the first 
working display that we have in our files at the Museum of the American Printing House for the Blind is a device invented first in the United States by a guy named James Bryce at, at IBM, at International Business Machines, about 1950. And then later, a similar device is worked on by a guy named Arnold Grunwald at the Argonne National Library in Illinois. In US. And this device stored information on perforated paper tapes and then created raised braille characters on this rotating plastic belt that moved under the reader's fingers at an adjustable pace. And as the as the as the rubber uh, band uh, flipped back under into the device, it would flatten out the dots and then rearrange them, um, you know, as it as it rotated. By the early 1970s, other early Braille displays were electromechanical. They used solenoids, essentially powerful miniature magnets, to raise and lower pins to create the Braille. And data was stored on cassette tapes. Um, both of the earliest examples of this are German. Um, uh, a guy named Werner Bolt introduced his Braillex. And then also in Germany, Carl, Klaus Peter Schoenherr was working on the problem, and his company later became Handytech. And then in Great Britain, there was a guy named John Clark who was experimenting with a device called the Braille Link. But just as Braille originally comes from France, it was in France that the first real breakthrough occurred. Um, and it came from the imagination of a pair of, of a married couple named Oleg and Andy Tretiakov. And they introduced the first commercially available paperless Braille machine in 1976 in Paris, France. It was called an Alenfa Digicassette, and it stored data on a C60 cassette tape and then displayed data on a bar that would raise and lower pins to create and erase a line of Braille at a time. And it was Tretikov that pioneered the piezoelectric display technology that dominates the market even today, using the principle that some materials change shape when zapped with small electrical charges. So Tretikov is looking to get his idea to spread around the United States, around the world. So he he brings his his uh, his Olympha Digicassette to this American company, Telesensory hoping to partner with them to get his device into the American market. But instead, Telesensory figured out that they could probably work around uh, uh, Tradikov's patent. And so they introduced their own device in 1979, the VersaBraille, which was also a portable device that stored data on a cassette tape and featured a 20-cell refreshable Braille display. And you could use the VersaBraille as a note-taker, entering and editing data using its Perkins Braille or keyboard. You could use it as a reading machine, reading Braille documents on the display, or you could use it as a computer terminal, attaching it to a full-size computer and reading Braille on the uh, VersaBraille rather than looking at a computer screen. And so really for the last 40, 50 years, Refreshable Braille development has simply been a refinement of Tretiakov's ideas, only now using transistor technology to miniaturize the devices, um, playing around with the number of Braille cells in the display, um, as few as 16 or 18 on a small device and up to 40 on a, a full Braille terminal, and then adding or subtracting applications on the device that would really turn them into true pocket computers with a wide range, wide array of capabilities. 
And there are many refreshable Braille displays, uh, devices on the market today from many manufacturers. But until recently, all of them continued to rely on variations of Tretiakov's piezoelectric cell. And those cells remain pretty expensive to this day, about $250 a cell. And so refreshable Braille displays um, have remained pretty expensive. The Versa Braille clearly was the, the the game changer for me. I just about remember the uh, the Versa Braille and being taught uh, how to use one. And, and you alluded to the costs there, Mike. Do we know anything about uh, some of the users of those early products and and specifically what they will have likely uh, cost? Well, you know, each each one of the uh, you know uh, companies that were coming up with these things kind of had different ideas about how they might be used. For, in, for instance, you mentioned the VersaBraille. Really, Telesensory was hoping to get into the American uh, Library of Congress market for talking books, like re to replace Braille books and talking books that you would download from, I mean, that you would get from the Library of Congress with a refreshable Braille display device, an e-reader, right? But that never panned out for them. Um, but all of these devices were really expensive. It, it costs a tremendous amount of money to bring them to market. And then the market was so small, just as it is today, that they ended up having to charge a tremendous amount of money for each one. And one that comes to mind is the Clark and Smith Braille Link, uh, which was one of the first refreshable Braille display devices that also had a QWERTY keyboard. Um, and it came out in 1982, and it cost, in 1982, 5,000 pounds. Goodness me, that's uh, over 40 years ago now and um, £5,000 in 1982 clearly uh, <laughs> was was quite a bit more than it is now. It might be 50,000, you know, 50,000 pounds now. I don't know. But yeah, it was, yeah, it was way out, well outside the, uh, you know, what, what uh, an ordinary person could expect to be able to, you know, to be able to afford. And, and I think that Braille Link, the, a number of them comes to mind. I think in the first 10 years that, that they were selling those, they sold like 60, 60. I mean, that's unfathomable, right? That you could have a product that you would sell that few of. And do you think, uh, Mike, and, and I'm going to come to you, Andrew, in a second. Um, Mike, do you think there's anything uh, from those early days, uh, perhaps something in your museum, maybe a product or a feature that, that we're lacking today? That, that have, we, have we lost anything, do you think? <laughs> well, you know, this is what I'm thinking we've lost. Um, one, you already alluded to it. They're really expensive. And while uh, refreshable Braille displays today are, you know, they're still expensive, but they're not nearly as expensive as they were. They were heavy back then. They were very heavy. Now the refreshable Braille displays are small enough you can stick them in your pocket. And they, they were fragile back then. Like if you dropped one, it broke. So, you know, when, when I was reading your question in advance, what I was thinking is the things we've lost are all the bad things. You know, the modern refreshable Braille displays are durable. They're, they're, uh, they're, uh, they're small and light. You can put them in your pocket and, and they're a lot less expensive. Yeah, nobody was putting a Versa Braille in their pocket for sure. So, Andrew, let's uh, come to you then. Of course, uh, Humanware famed, you know, for the Braille Note amongst uh, other products. And the Braille Note taker now, of course, is well established. Uh, how would you say it's evolved over the years? Uh, well, it's evolved significantly. I mean, if we if we go back from the, the Versa Braille uh, years, as, as Michael was saying, um, you know, back in 1979, uh, I'd say the the real kind of game changer of note taker started during the early 2000. Um, that's where I believe it was kind of established. 
it initially offered the way to to achieve your daily tasks from one device while working in that fully versatile Braille environment. Uh, again, it included various different uh, options to uh, of input, so a QWERTY input and a Braille input. And it also opened the doors to the World Wide Web, um, you know, in an all-in-Braille environment. And back then, speed was not so much of an issue when we're working with the dial-ups. Um, it, it was, in fact, that you could obtain lots of information or, or and explore the world around you. But really moving for a few years forward to 2016, that's where a more significant breakthrough happened for note takers and really took advantage of mainstream technology. You know, where we saw the shift from the Windows CE environment to an Android operating system, you know, and this applies to most note takers out there today, including the Brownout Touch and the uh, the Braille Sense. You know, there, this was the era where tablets and apps were the big buzzword during those you know, 2015 2016 and the brown note touch at that point was was classified as the first google certified braille tablet uh which tablet which gave access to third-party apps and with the keysoft which is the the environment that the user experienced those third-party apps providing they had accessibility built in would be um will be productive to use through, through uh, the Keysoft accessibility suite from Humanware. But the Braille Note Touch specifically was designed around students and teachers. So, you know, we had the option to type in Braille using a physical Perkins keyboard or the use of the touch screen to type in Braille. And that screen still today serves for many benefits. Um, now, don't get me wrong, the screen does add to the weight, uh, but classroom teachers are typically familiar and comfortable with tablets and smartphones, but not familiar with Braille. And the Braille Note Touch screen is able to display the content in print while the Braille display was displaying the content in Braille in real time. So it's enabling both the student and the teacher to access at the same time. It also serves as a way as typing. You know, you, as I mentioned, it's we've used um, a, paint, a patent in, invention uh, for touch Braille and users can also type Braille on the touch screen, offering a way to type in in silence. But note takers now you know, from my perspective, continues to be improved through their proprietary software, um, you know, making way for um, creating printed math contents, science, grass, uh, working in a remote learning environment. I mean, and again, during the pandemic, these note takers uh, were, were critical for, for students and users that had to work um, in their home environment. Accessing to learning management systems like the Google Classroom, and the most recent involvement at the moment is a first-of-a-kind Braille-centric coding application. And again, coding is a big buzzword that we're hearing uh, during these recent years. And having a, an application uh, bespoke for Braille devices, it just makes coding more engaging and relevant to, to the Braille users. So to summarize, note-takers have evolved with the advantages of modern mainstream tools, although at times it that is also challenging to keep up with their release cycle. But Keysoft um, plays the imperative role in note takers evolution and, and there'll be more to come uh, to cater for new use cases as they, as, they, uh, as they come against us. So lots of progress in terms of connectivity and, and software capability. Thinking about the hardware and the Braille display itself, uh, Mike uh, sort of indicated that the technology that really kind of domi dominates the market at the moment, that, that uh, Piezo Electric uh, technology hasn't really changed substantially. Are you able to comment on that? 
Well, I mean, firstly, it's great to see many Braille devices come through. I mean, it's not just Braille devices from humanware. Other Braille manufacturers are really you know, producing Braille. I'm sure Bankatesh will touch base on, on, on what he's offering. And it's great to see so many options because I don't think we've been in a better situation than we are today with the amount of Braille displays that are available. As for the kind of underlying technology that you referenced, the Braille Piazzo, it, it's, you know, I'm certainly in agreement. And, and what we have to look at is the uh, reliability um that's the big one for us i mean when we look at developing new products we have to think about the reliability the customer feedback and the change in technology there's a huge risk and if we've we've been we've been viewing many many different technologies uh, a lot of startup companies do approach humanware and they have come and gone and it's it's very unfortunate because we all want to have the same we all working towards the same goal right to have more brow at a cheaper price um but there's still nothing out there today like the piazzo and if there is new technology and there is new technology which is great to see there are some limitations that we need to consider we're going to come to uh, Venkatesh in just a moment. Final question for you, Andrew. With the lines between Braille displays and note takers blurring, um, who, who is the, the user of each of those products or doesn't that really matter anymore? That, that's a great question. And it's a question that arises quite frequently. Um, you know, when we, when we look at new Braille devices, we look to offer something different, you know, relevant to today's environment and specific to new use cases that, each persona have. In comparison to note takers, a Braille display functionality is still preliminary a Braille terminal that will connect to a modern mainstream device. So for many users that are confident with mainstream devices and screen readers, a Braille display is perfectly adequate to achieve their task. But what makes that a little bit you know, a little blurry uh, is the new modern Braille displays today, including the Brilliant BIX, the Mantis, Chameleons, and, and so on have some form of intelligence built in or standalone applications as they are known. And these standalone applications are attended for smaller note-taking tasks. Similar to our sighted peers, they have access to laptops, mobile phones, um, and they will take notes using their pen and paper. Um, so this could be quite be misconceived as, as a solid solution for your note-taking needs, which is not the case. So these new intelligent brow displays are more of a hybrid approach. And are mainly suited for those who are confident with screen readers that require some basic note-taking and reading tools. Uh, whereas the Brown Note Touch was specifically designed around students, teachers, to accommodate all of most of their requirements, such as formatting, PowerPoints, and more seamless Braille environment that allows you to concentrate on learning the curriculum that you, you're there for and not a specific device and screen reader. So a Braille display is often used by a person who's used to a screen reader and for those who require full note-taker experience accomplished like schoolwork, the ideal solution would be would be a note-taker. Venkatesh, what is the problem that Orbit Research is trying to solve? The main problem we're trying to solve is really affordable access to Braille, you know, the dream of Braille for all, right? You know, as, as Mike and Andrew have, have spoken, um, Braille displays have now been around for close to four decades. You know, in their current form, they've been based on uh, piezo technology, which is inherently expensive to manufacture. And uh, also traditionally, you know, many manufacturers of uh, displays have been different companies from the manufacturers of sale of, of the Braille cells themselves. And so various factors contribute to the end cost of displays being 
even higher as each part of the supply chain has to factor in its operating margins, profits, et cetera. So we, we decided to develop a new technology that would enable us to fundamentally reduce the cost of braille cells. And by also manufacturing the displays ourselves, we've been able to offer braille products at price points that are you know, much more affordable um, than other models. And this was the vision that the Transforming Braille Group was formed to pursue. And you know, we're really humbled that we have been able to make this a, a, a reality to a, to a large extent. So one of our goals was also, you know, in addition to affordable Braille, one of the goals was also to produce better quality of Braille and to have lower power consumption so that you know, devices can be used more easily and more conveniently um, in uh, developing countries where access to power may not be um, that, that easy. And uh, so you know, we're, we're really excited that our our technology also offers these these facilities you know being able to um, have uh, essentially zero power once the braille cells the once the braille pins have transitioned and um, also to produce very rigid firm braille which is very unique and is often com compared with uh, signage braille it's especially valuable for for beginners um, one of the things we also wanted to do was to keep the products really simple and easy to use, um, providing some basic standalone functions um, and uh, uh, keeping in mind that the landscape of uh, you know, consumer products and uh, you know, user scenarios, user behavior uh, has changed in the past, past decade or so. You know, today almost everyone, including people in in developing countries, have access to a smartphone or a computer. So uh, our products don't try to do the kinds of things that a phone or a computer already does and does really well. Um, you know, they all have really great browsers and you know Twitter and Facebook clients and uh, you know great email uh, software. So. Our products don't really attempt to try to duplicate those functions. Uh, it's A, it's a moving target. Uh, B, it's really, really expensive in terms of development effort and support um, uh, efforts to keep up with, with those move, you know, moving and changing, uh, evolving standards. So we've tried to uh, work very hard to keep our products simple, easy to use and, and affordable. So in a nutshell, you know, it's really the affordable access that uh, that's the problem that we've been working to solve. And given that you are working with an alternative braille cell technology, what have been some of the challenges that you've, you've faced? I mean, nobody else for, as you say, for 40 years really has uh, tried to challenge the status quo to the same extent that, that Orbit has. So, so what have been some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome with, with an alternative cell technology? Yeah, we'd, we'd probably need a couple of days to list all of those obstacles. <laughs> so the, the main challenges are in manufacturing extremely precise, high quality, high reliability parts at relatively low volumes while still achieving low cost. So uh, this is what you would call an over-constrained problem. Right? Taken individually, each of these requirements is relatively easy to meet, and even taken two at a time, they're achievable. So you can get uh, ex you know, high precision parts, high quality parts, um, 
at a high cost. Uh, you can get you know, high quality at low volumes, but at a high cost. But when you try to bring all of these together, uh, it's a really, really hard problem to solve. And that's really what we have spent most of our energy in, in engineering, you know, innovating, uh, using mainstream technologies and parts to uh, achieve, uh, you know, the uh, each of these aspects, and um, uh, we have we have we have been successful in achieving this, um, uh, but it has it has taken a, a tremendous amount of effort and um, takes you know continues to take effort because um, it's something that has to be closely monitored, continuously improved in order to maintain the. The, the, the quality that, you know, we want our customers to expect from us. I know you assistive technology product guys like to play your cards close to your chest and, and keep your powder dry. I've, I've signed many a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, are you able to share any uh, processes or, or components that, that might be in the pipeline uh, that would change the experience for consumers? So um, uh, our, 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 you know, goal, our overarching goal continues to be affordable access to Braille. And so to, to this end, we are pursuing several initiatives to optimize the cost of our Braille technology further. Um, we're also following developments in the industry. There are several exciting things that have been shown recently, which certainly have potential. And one of the challenges, of course, you know, as, as uh, uh, Mike and Andrew also alluded to, you know, is, is that the the transition of science to technology to viable product is not easy. There have been many concepts in the past that have held much promise, but for various reasons, uh, haven't been able to translate into viable technologies and products. So there's a lot of work that lies between exciting concepts and viable products. And um, a significant part of our efforts uh, are applied to this aspect, you know, um, uh, evaluating you know, improvements to um, existing technologies, evaluating new technologies, um, and then determining how viable they are. Um, you know, it's, it's possible to make cells um, really compact and, uh, and lightweight and, you know, and really thin. Um, but, you know, is the, you know, is the cost still acceptable? You know, is the usability still there? And uh, one of the challenges is that, you know, fundamentally, you know, the laws of physics still have to be obeyed in our universe. And uh, and this is a, a a problem of physics, right? You know, you're you're trying to actually make a dot or a pin move um, and exert you know several grams of force. It is you know most people can you know ask, oh, what's so dif difficult about a braille display? You know, you can get you know really inexpensive uh, LCD displays, and the difference is that you know photons, uh, well, light particles are massless, well whereas braille pins and fingers are not. So. Um, you know, that's kind of a long answer to your question, Dave, but uh, I, I hope it's helpful. Great content from our panel so far, but now this is the time to ask your questions if you have any. So we're going to come to Mike Moat first, and after Mike, we're going to come to Theo. Uh, Mike, you are good to go. Thank you, and uh, thank you for what you guys are doing today. This is a really good uh, discussion. And just a quick question about uh, support for Braille on Android. I know in the recent months they uh, included it in the talkback for the first time, but the HID uh, protocol 
uh, has not really been supported, and that's hurting those of us who use uh, Mantis for one. Uh, for one, and it probably would be an issue for others. And I'm just curious as to how these uh, those of you who are you know working with braille displays, creating braille displays, making these things work. How does that? How do you deal with that? And what is your role as it relates to? you know, discussing that with uh, the makers of Android and particularly the talkback function and how this could, you know, maybe be forwarded into the future so that those of us who do use more uh, hid protocol type Braille displays could benefit from using an Android system and an Android platform. Android, would you like to say this one? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm very transparent with this answer. <laughs> and, um, you know, this this takes us back to the year 2017, where, where I know a lot of us here in the panel were actually present at CSUN to discuss this new uh, HID uh, protocol. And, um, you know, when we look at how how can we all improve Braille as, as one, you know, in terms of making it better for the community and, and making it even more cheaper, is is this is perfectly one to discuss about you know making it calibration between mainstream organizations like apple google and braille manufacturers now back then in 2017 um you know it was kind of agreed and everyone agreed to say we'll move forward with this new standard to make it simple for developing new braille products therefore making it cheaper for braille manufacturers because there'll be no need to have their own bespoke drivers to then pay for that to be published to screen readers. Um, so I'm very transparent in that Google have I've been very disappointed in that Google haven't really pushed this. And we've been on and on at Google for many, many years about this. And uh, they they really haven't responded uh, in a good way. So unfortunately, from what I'm hearing at the moment from Google, they're not interested in pushing the new head forward. Um, but what I do know, if you've got a Mantis or other Braille displays that are only using the Braille head standard, you can plug in a USB-C cable and that should work without Braille TTY. Initially, you could use Braille TTY as the as the uh, kind of the accessibility service. But I believe now the new updates that Google are pushing will include a new version of their talkback, which will incorporate the Braille TTY and you'll be able to use it with a, a USB-C but certainly not Bluetooth at this stage. Um, hope that answers your question, Mike. I think that's that's a bit of a win, isn't it? Getting that Braille support built into Android uh, out of the the box, and it's been a long time in coming. So uh, hopefully, we're starting to see some some progress there. Uh, uh, we've got lots of questions to get through. Ben, should you take your next hand? Yeah, thank you for that, Mike. We're going to come to Theo now. And after Theo, we're going to come to another Mike, but Mike Townsend. Uh, Theo, you are now unmuted. So I was wondering if Shimuna have any plans to improve the display of maths in UEB codes on the Brilliant, specifically both when connected to JAWS, because it currently only displays Nemeth, and also in the calculator on the display itself, like in the Keysoft Lite app, it is only computer well, which means it is not very useful for me. So if I forget my calculator, it, it's often a viable alternative to use a calculator on the device, and the Braille display one's great, except that sadly at the moment, that's only in computer well. Okay, I'm sure we're going to have questions for Venkatesh and Mike as well, but I think this is another one for you, Andrew. Sure, no problem. Hi, Theo. So, um, yeah, so if you're referring to the Brailleian BIX then with the calculator. Um, that, that's your question, uh, right, Theo, not the, the Braille note. 
Yes, I was referring to the brilliance because the Braille, it, it, it works already. Sure. So the, in terms of the brilliance, then, um, you know, when we first released the Braille displays, we we wanted to add some form of calculator. And at this current moment in time, it's using the US computer Braille code to, uh, as a basic computer, you know, basic calculator function. So this is, um, you know, looking back at the differences between what a note taker is and what a Braille display is, this is one example where, when we look at creation of math contents, a Braille display with a standalone app is something that we probably would not happen. Uh, but certainly working with a, st- um, a mainstream computer or you know, a screen reader, the UEB should certainly be working because all of the information is coming from the screen reader, not the device at that time. But as a standalone application, um, that's something we will We'll try and um, add UEB, like basic calculations for UEB and NEMIF, but certainly not a full scientific calculator. Thank you so much, Andrew. And let's, um, you know, let's let's look after Andrew. He's not he's not here specifically to do the uh, the technical support tonight. We do want to tell the story of the sort of the evolution of of, of Braille technology as well. So uh, questions for uh, Mike Hudson from the APH uh, Museum and uh, uh, Venkatesh, who's uh, trying to shake things up over at uh, Orbit as well. Very welcome, Ben. Thank you for that, Theo. Uh, last hand for now, uh, Mike Townsend. Uh, you are now good to go. Hello, Ben, and hello, everybody. I remember the Grunwald machine in the 1960s. One was brought over to Worcester College for the Blind. It was a massive machine, and I remember thinking, this has got a future. But then it disappeared. But I did get my first Braille display, and it was funded by Germans, but I was in Britain when I got it, and that was the Versa Braille II. That was a 20-cell device with a three-and-a-half-inch floppy in it, and it worked as a note-taker and a program writer, but also it had a screen reader called BRAT, which linked with the IBM computer, uh, PC, IBM PC, and it had a wonderful set of buttons that you could navigate around really intuitively. And that gets me to my thinking, because although we've got there with modern note takers that actually had a a switch so I could go between note taking and screen reader back in 1982 so it was very advanced thinking I don't really know where I'd be without my braille displays I lecture from them I program in them I write my uh, theses and so forth in them Uh, so braille displays are really important but don't forget there's more to a display than just the dots that pop up that's the stuff around it. And the thumb, the thumb buttons, the buttons that you enter the Braille in. And also, I think Ed's on here, but also maybe more lines than just one to actually read stuff with. So it's not just a display to, for information to get some information out to you, but it's a display that you use and interact with to do your work and, and have leisure with. So uh, I've had them all right the way through. I've still got a couple now. Probably my favourite one would be the David, produced by Baum. Why did I like that one? Because it had optical character routing. So you could just move your finger above a, a, a cell and the cursor would go straight there. And also while you're reading, as you move your fingers across, it detected that you come to the end of the line and automatically move down. Cursor routing is very important, 
But the best kind of cursor routing I've ever experienced was the David with optical character routing. I could talk forever, but um, you can interview me sometime, but I've got a, quite an experience of Braille displays. And thanks for the history. And if you'd like any bits from me, um, Mike, for the museum, I've been over there, seen your museum, but I've got some pretty ancient stuff here you might like to look at. Oh, it, it sounds like I need to come see you. <laughs> yeah, that's those are the kind of stories I love hearing. We got one of those VersaBraille twos into the collection not too long ago. Um, and yeah, the it's 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 uh it's like a almost like the past is a uh, is a is a is a is almost like it's a it's a family tree of all these different companies who at one time or another have manufactured devices. And Mike Hudson, while we've got you, um, about multi-line then, uh, I mean, we're starting to hear a lot more about that now. Um, you know, some of the manufacturers have made announcements. You know, we always hear rumours, of course. Um, is this the kind of the first point which we've seen any kind of multi-line emerge? We, we know Canute, of course, uh, from Bristol Braille Technology. Uh, has, has anyone else had a stab at, at multi-line? What do you think's changed recently? Well, you know the um, the 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 full page Braille uh, refreshable Braille display has often been described as the holy grail of of, of Braille displays, um, and and I know that APH um, I'm not you know involved in in product development, um, but I know that we are probably introducing uh, or announcing you know uh, today that um, we've got this device a full page display called the dynamic tactile device the DDT um, which is a full page refreshable braille and tactile graphics display so it's going to combine um, um, braille with with actual tactile graphics so that that's a uh, you know that's a pretty big big development that's going on here at APH. Indeed, yeah, and we should also mention uh, graffiti that Orbit has demonstrated publicly uh, in in the past, which is a, a tactile display. And of course, the Canute has nine lines of of forty cells. So, Ben, I think we've got a couple more hands. Yeah, uh, so we're going to come to Christine first, and after Christine, we're going to come to Bart. Uh, Christine, you are now unmuted. Okay, um, you talked about the difference between the user of the Braille display and the note taker, and there's a continuum there from the student to the person who is like working with computers routinely. And I, 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 that continuum is interesting because I think a lot of people get stuck in whichever one they're on and the kids come out of school, not knowing how to use a computer with a braille display, as opposed to a note taker. And they think they have to live with note takers the rest of their lives. And I, I, I think um, you know, that can be, uh, that's just my comment. And I wonder how do you address that continuum issue? I, I can certainly answer that, Christine. Um, it's a great, it's a great question. And, and it's something that HumanWare also promotes, you know, we don't promote that you just use a note taker in schools. Um, we certainly push the fact that you need to learn, um, your QWERTY keys. Um, you need to learn JAWS screen, screen readers of any type. So whether it be NVDA or, or JAWS or any other screen reader, it's really important for them for, for them to learn that so that they can become more employable as they get older. As you said, note takers is not something they want to take on for, for the whole of their career. So it is something that we, we, we drive, we push towards that you need to learn. But what we're saying is the message is, you know, in schools at a young age, um, you know, including our, the TVIs of this world, it's very difficult to learn a screen reader, uh, you know, at a young age. And so 
rather than learning the screen reader and the braille display, it what's really important for that that young kiddo is to learn the curriculum, learn what they're there for initially. Okay, and then they're using tools like a note taker to easily seamlessly work in a, in an all braille environment at first, but then also transfer their skills into QWERTY and of course computer skills. I mean that's really important, and we've never said just use a note taker. You know we. We go to our sighted peers and they use laptops, iPads, all kinds of different tools. And uh, we all have different tools in um, you know, in our pockets. So it's really important for, you know, for those kids to, to have the same. Thank you for that, Christine, and uh, thank you for that answer as well, Andrew. Uh, gonna come to Bart. You are good to go. Good evening. It's nice talking about history and I'm only uh, 42, but I thought to give out a quick uh, shout out to some products that I used in, um, in Belgium and that might not be very well known in other countries. I was eight years old, uh, 1988, when I uh, went to regular school and uh, I needed um, already technology because the teacher promised to learn Braille, but uh, she didn't. And I was one of the first customers of a product called Braille Deck. And it's, um, I was still using the Perkins Brailler and on the bottom, they attached uh, an electric device that would rec um, recognize the mechanic um, movements of the, of the dots. And a cable was running to a little box called the Braille Deck. And um, that could store one um, file of eight kilobytes. So uh, one exercise at a time. Um, and I could print it out for the sighted teacher, or I could uh, uh, attach uh, a monitor, a screen, so that they could watch what I was uh, typing away on my on my Perkins. I used that for three years, and in '92 uh, um, I started using my first note taker. It was called Braille Scope, also produced by the Belgian company uh, Sensotech. Um, a note taker which could hold at least um, um, 512 kilobytes, so at least I could have my math uh, exercises separated from my um, French uh, courses. And uh, that had one Braille cell and uh, was very compact, was very small. And again, I could attach it to a um, normal printer, a Braille printer, a screen, um, or I could even back up it to the computer. And then third product and last one I wanted to mention in 94, I got my first Braille display. Um, to work with the computer. It was called Braudi, also um, developed in Belgium. And um, it was revolutionary in the sense that it uh, was a, a braille display, 12 cells, no cursor routing yet, no thumb keys, anything, um, just 12 uh, braille cells. And it, it housed also the Apollo uh, uh, um, synthetic uh, speed, as you know, it was hardware at the time. So it was one small device, not much bigger than today's 40 cell uh, Braille display. And um, so much smaller than, than the other uh, products that we had, it was very portable. So 12 cells and uh, the Apollo on board um, that I could use with my uh, DOS um, computer. Yeah, Bart, this is Mike Hudson. I, I've seen devices like what you're talking about with the Perkins Brailler mounted to a, uh, a, a box that would convert the the keystrokes into basically turning a, a Perkins Brailler into a data entry device. Um, actually, uh, uh, Dean Blasey, uh, who's a, a technology pioneer in the United States, well-known, um, um, had a company called Maryland Computer Services that manufactured those things. We have them in the collection. 
Always interesting to hear about different uh, pieces of Braille technology through the ages. Thank you, Bart. Thank you, Mike. I'm going to come straight to Paul Sullivan now. Uh, Paul, you are now unmuted. Hi, everyone. Thanks for giving me the chance to ask my question. Um, it's more of a thought, really. I'm interested in all kinds of technologies, and the issue of uh, refreshable Braille really interests me a lot. And I'm wondering what happened to the... Mountbatten Brailler, um, because it seems to me that is a kind of refreshable Braille. It's not pins going up and down. It's Braille on paper, but um, you can print out stuff. You can or could um, make many copies, and it seems to me it kind of does what you want from a refreshable Braille. It produces Braille on demand, and uh, but without the issue of the piezo crystals and all that sort of expensive uh, technology that we've heard about today. Just wondered if anybody on the technical side has got any thoughts on that. I guess the, the mount button's more like an embosser than, than a display, is it fair to say? Well, it could do, it could do a lot of things. Uh, but, you know, it, it could do pretty much anything you wanted. The one thing it didn't have was a refreshable Braille display. But it could be connected to a computer. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, could, it could drive a standard printer even. Thank you for that, Paul. We're going to try a uh, phone number ending in 908. Uh, I've just asked you to unmute. Just give you a moment to do that, and you're good to go. I have an old Versa uh, Braille 2. Somebody actually gave me um, with instructions. I obviously have no use for it, but I don't want to throw it away. Uh, does anybody have any suggestions as to what I can do? Would anybody be interested? Oh, that's a hard one. You know, we have two of them in our museum collection. So then the next question would go, what, what other museums in the United States might, might want to, uh, to uh, collect one of those? Um, you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of times eBay is a really great way to find somebody out there that wants the, the, the piece of technology that you have. Because there is somebody out there that wants one. You know, I don't, I don't say that until I know that the museum has collected it, right? <laughs> but after that, you know, I mean, a lot of times I go on eBay and find pieces of this old technology out there. Uh, it, it's it's pretty great place to look for it. Great tip there. Uh, we're going to come to Sandy next. And after Sandy, we'll uh, try to uh, get a couple more hands in um, from people who we haven't been able to unmute. Uh, Sandy, you are now unmuted. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Um, just a couple of very quick points. Um, my first ever Braille note taker was a Versa Braille. And to this day, I remember writing very quickly in Braille and whether it was I pressed the wrong chord sequence. But I remember so often my cassette starting to rewind to the beginning and having to work out how much text I'd lost uh, since since I'd last saved it. So we've come a long way in terms of reliability of Braille displays. But what we haven't touched on this evening is the link that there has historically been between accessing Braille, um, being able to have a Braille display or note taker, the luxury of having one, uh, and it's linked to employment. And it's a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? You know, it's your employability is, is boosted if you have a Braille display, but at the same time, to have a Braille display, and you know, it, it's helpful if you're in employment. And I suppose that's one of the benefits of, of, of the access to work system. 
them uh, in the UK. Um, but certainly they, they, they have become so much more reliable, haven't they? And the other thing I wanted to very quickly touch on was the importance of being able to use mainstream um, IT. Um, I've come across situations in the past where I've worked in a big organisation and somebody wanted to, you know, wanted a role, if you like, within the organisation, but they could only use Braille note takers. And we had a, a, a very complex IT network, which, uh, you know, most um, Braille displays and note takers just, or if any, really, couldn't have coped with. So it's tough for students now, but they do need both those skills, don't they? That You know, the ability to use um, the, the Braille note takers, but also the, the, the mainstream. So I just wanted to reiterate that, really, uh, the, the importance of that in, in terms of employability skills. To Sandy's point, Venkatesh, how aware have you been uh, about that sort of chicken and egg situation that sometimes you need a Braille display to get a job and you need a job to get a Braille display? And obviously that's, you know, one of the drivers for you is pushing down the cost so that individuals perhaps might be able to afford their own device. Yes, indeed. I mean, that that is a, a, a very I guess, classic problem uh, challenge that uh, people essentially all over the world uh, face. And uh, as, as, you, as you just said, um, bringing down the cost of Braille displays makes it more affordable to, to individuals. Um, and to the extent that you know, they're now affordable to, to many people, even in developing countries. But what it also uh, enables is for small, smaller or individual donors to make it possible for a student or a or a visually impaired person to have a braille display. So whereas you know previously the braille the cost of braille displays were so high, very often you know someone would donate one to a school, and it would promptly get locked away because it was so valuable, so expensive that and they had no means of enabling you know one student to make use of the display. So it was essentially you know even though somebody was generous enough to donate one you know it, it really wasn't of of any use to the uh, to the uh, end user so with the lower cost braille displays that has changed dramatically so instead of one you know someone can donate several you know five or ten and make a real difference to the uh, to, to the school or, or to the organization it's heartbreaking when you hear about kids who are told they can't take their braille display home because it's too risky you know uh ben i think we might have a couple more hands yeah, uh, we're going to come to Alison next. Uh, Alison, you are uh, good to go. Thanks. Uh, just a quick question, because I haven't used a, a Braille note taker in quite a while. I, I I started off with the Braille note and then the Apex in high school. And ever since college, I used a, the Focus 40 Blue Braille display. But I'm curious, because the big one of the big reasons I switched was because converting the documents from BRF to a Word document for my, for my teacher's was really tedious because I can only do one at a time. Like if I could have, if I could have con converted, you know, a whole folder of documents, it would have been a lot easier. Has there been any progress made towards that? Alison, what was the note taker that you said you had? A, a classic Empower or? It was a. It was called the the Braille Note Apex. So with the Apex, I, I know you certainly can uh, select a folder and translate all those uh, Braille files to a DOC file. So that that is certainly possible, and we can certainly um, touch base and uh, get you doing that if you if you need. It's not a problem. 
Thank you for that, Alison. Uh, great question. Uh, Going to come to Steve Downing next. And uh, Steve, uh, start talking. You are good to go. <laughs> Hi, guys. Fantastic session. Very, very enjoyable and interesting. Uh, just a question about um, making rail available to people. Obviously, price is a huge factor, but also from the point of view of a manufacturer, what are the challenges in terms of on a global scale in terms of things like distribution, sales, um, supporting users with things like repairs and that kind of thing? How much of an impact does that have on, do you think, on actually making devices available to, to the end user? I, I can certainly answer that one. Um, that's okay. I mean, so from, from a Global perspective, you know, humanware have distributed uh, thousands of Braille devices globally. And one of the biggest challenges recently is, of course, the procurements of parts. Uh, you know, thanks to the, the pandemic and, of course, the uh, uh, the recession that we're now in, you could say, uh, the procurements of parts over the last few years has been a, a huge challenge. Uh, and also the um, the cost that it takes to support these products i mean again we, we we speak to many newcomers in this industry you know from india and china there's a lot of newcomers that come into our industry that are doing the good thing and trying to make braille affordable and new devices and so on it's something that they, they create from their university studies and uh, unfortunately what they don't add to the cost is of course the support of the product and that's that's truthfully um a lot of support when it comes to braille devices and um, yeah, that that really is some of those challenges. The support, the scale, of course, is a big thing. Um, you know, we can't compete against mainstream devices because of the scale that we're in. And of course, the investment that is needed to come back to the brand manufacturers to to create new products to uh, to you know um, innovate, continue innovation. Brilliant answer. Thank you very much, Andrew. I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of um, crystal ball gazing and just see how far <laughs> each of you is willing to sort of stick your neck out where where do you see the uh braille display landscape in sort of five or or ten years from now i appreciate it's a it's an impossible question to answer but sort of given the direction of travel and all this talk of multi-line and potentially tactile uh graphics where are we where are we headed let's um let's maybe start with with mike you've got a perhaps more of a longitudinal view looking at this over the um the the decades i think it's a it's a hard question because it's impossible to pick winners and and what i mean by that is that only the marketplace is going to determine what succeeds and fails and so it, you know one of the th the hardest things that aph has has confronted in the last 20 years is how hard it is to develop a technology product uh, with its tremendous lead time um, and get it to market before the technology is already obsolete. So I'm going to punt and say, I have no idea, but but only the marketplace is going to decide what succeeds and what fails. Sure. Do you think we're still going to be grappling with with pins and the like or do you think we're going to get to you know polymers and and smart materials and and that kind of thing i mean venkatesh made some interesting points about we're still going to obey the laws of physics in this universe right and miniaturization you know they the things continue to get lighter and 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 that sort of thing but but is it still durable if it's light because things that uh, you know people that are blind or low vision tend to use need to be pretty robust so the the physics thing is a good that's a good that's a good point. Mm. 
Uh, Andrew, uh, I mean, you made uh, a brilliant point just now about uh, support, and I've worked in the industry, and I understand a bit about you know how much you know high quality support and training and and all that stuff costs. So whatever technology comes along, people are always going to need um, high quality support. Well, correct. I mean. <laughs> I think that going back to your initial question about where I see this um, in a few years time, I think the big talk is multi-line and tactile graphics. Now, there is no doubt that there'll still be single line displays out there. But one of the big things and big challenges um, is for multi-lines is, of course, the cost. So the technology needs to be there. And there isn't any solid studies at this state to say multi-line displays are more efficient than a single line. I mean, the only purpose of a multi-line really is, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's more convenient when it comes to reading math contents, technical material and spatial content, um, you know, which is, of course, a challenge on single line display. But there isn't any real solid evidence about you know, the, the actual efficiency of multi-line. But we do see new technology coming on the horizon. I mean, one technology that I can um, mention is, of course, the DOT technology, which, of course, is what's being used on the, the device that APH and Humeware are creating. And it's light, it's slim, and it's something that can be used for multi-line. It's, it's certainly feasible in comparison to piezo electrical cells because using piezo, piezo electrical cells, it creates a large gap in between your lines. Um, you know, just that's just how the piezo electrical cells are formed. And so having larger gaps in between lines to me defeats the object of multi-line and spatial awareness. So I do think that going forward, we will see a lot more multi-line displays. The Canoe, of course, is there. The displays from, um, from Orbit, from Vankatesh there, is, is coming into play. So it's great to see this. It's great to see this shift that's happening. So I do believe that there is um, there is going to be a new revolution for Braille, and it will be in a multi-line way. Mm. Thank you, Tesh. Yeah, I, I would I would tend to agree with uh, you know, what, uh, what Andrew um, and and Mike have said. Uh, you know, we also believe that uh, multi-line displays will become uh, popular. Uh, and that doesn't mean that single line displays will will go away. Um, the the primary impediment in in our view to multi line displays, um, uh, apart from the fact that obviously they are they are going to be bigger than a small compact you know, twenty cell display, is the cost. And uh, that's you know that's where you know with our uh, low cost braille technology, a multi line display was a natural extension, and we always planned for this, and it might actually have happened earlier had it not been for events like uh, the pandemic. Um, but uh, we 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 feel there's a, you know, the, the multi-line displays will become common and 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 popular. Um, Single-line displays will become more affordable over the ten-year horizon. Um, you know, as you know, uh, our combined efforts, uh, you know. Uh, Increase the size of the of the market of the market and uh, the scales permit um, uh, lower costs and continuing innovation and investment in the fundamental technology. I think is crucial to make these happen. Right? Uh, you know, had we not had uh, had we not made that initial investment, uh, you know, uh, partly from the Transforming Braille Group uh, to develop the newer technology and the newer product, the new products based on that technology, we would not have had the this line of affordable braille displays. So uh, uh, apart from that, I, you know, I think graphics displays are going to become more common. Uh, they have been around for a while, right? You know, KGS made one 
um, decades ago, at least 15, 12, 15 years ago or more. Uh, Metek has had one for years. In, in, you know, graffiti has been around for about three years now um, as, a, as a finished product. And I think uh, the what really needs to happen is the, is the scale, and that's what's going to bring the, the prices down. It is a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, but I think with, with, with continued efforts, this is something that can be cracked. I think uh, you know APH's uh, uh, announcement. I think uh, definitely increases the momentum, and that's all really, really great for the industry and for the community. On behalf of everybody here at the Brailleist Foundation, a massive thank you to all three of you for uh, being so candid and open and willing to uh, participate in what has been a really fun and lively and fascinating uh, discussion. Mike Hudson, for people around the world wanting to learn more about the APH Museum, what's the best way to do that? Well, um, first off, everybody needs to come visit the museum. <laughs> but but second, our, um, we're on Facebook. Uh, we put a lot of history topics up there, and you can find us at, uh, uh, at APH Museum. And uh, uh, APH.org is our website. Andrew Flattress, Humanware, of course. We know where you guys are. Yes, you can contact us at uh, humanware.com or 19 and that's the UK telephone number, obviously. Uh, and finally, Venkatesh. Our website is orbitresearch.com, O-R-B-I-T-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com. And you can contact us over email at uh, information at orbitresearch.com or just simply sales or tech support at orbitresearch.com. They all get answered uh, promptly. <laughs> And a massive thank you to all of you for uh, sending in your questions, for sticking around, for participating and uh, making this World Braille Day one to remember. Thanks, Ben Mustel-Rose, for your help with the moderation and Matthew Horsball, who has been producing behind the scenes from myself, Dave Williams, chair of the Braillist Foundation and the rest of the team. Until next time. Bye for now. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brailcast, the official podcast of the Brailleists Foundation. You can find more Braille-related content by subscribing to Brailcast, all one word, in your podcast client of choice, or listening to Brailcast, connecting the dots for Brailleists everywhere on your smart speaker. You can also find past episodes on our website at brailcast.com. If you have comments on the podcast or suggestions of topics or guests for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Please email help at braylists.org. You can also find the Braylists on Twitter at Braylists or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Foundation. Finally, if you like what you've heard, spread the word. New listeners are always welcome. So if you know other people who are interested in Braille, please tell them where to find us. In the meantime, on behalf of everyone at the Braillists, thanks for listening and bye for now. The costs of producing this episode were defrayed by a grant from the Activate Fund of the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. For more information, visit wcmt.org.uk.